0: Welcome to the podcast Israel and Christians Today. This podcast is brought to you by Christians for Israel International. Join us on a journey as we explore and discover God's love for and His promises to the Jewish people. Our goal is to understand Israel and world events from a biblical perspective. Enjoy this new podcast episode. Well, hello, everybody. Good morning, good evening, wherever you might be watching, listening. Welcome to another episode of Israel and Christians Today podcasts. My name is Andrew Tucker, and I'm in conversation with Johannes Gerloff. I'm in the Netherlands. Johannes is in uh, the outskirts of Jerusalem. And we're talking... Shalom. (laughs) Shalom, Johannes. We're talking about international uh, law, and we're going to pick up on the conversation we actually started last podcast about the, the, the allegation that Israeli settlers are war criminals. And we're digging into what, why people think that and what is behind this. And is it about law or is it about morals? Um, what is driving this, this discussion? And I just want to emphasize uh, how significant this is. This is not just an intellectual exercise it's not just about language this is about the lives of ordinary people now right at this moment i am very close to the hague and a lot of the work i do is in the hague and in international law the international criminal court is located in the hague Uh, there are two main international courts in the hague one is the international court of justice that's the oldest uh court in the peace palace The other is the International Criminal Court, which was established two decades ago. And the the task of the International Criminal Court is to prosecute war criminals. This is an international regime set up under a a treaty, Treaty of Rome, to prosecute the worst war criminals in the world. And the whole idea is uh, because some of these war criminals are not being uh, caught and are not being brought to justice by their own countries, we need an international system which does that. The prosecutor has announced that she intends to prosecute Israeli leaders for the settlement policies of the state of Israel. What does that mean? It means they're going to prosecute people like Benjamin Netanyahu or others, names have not been mentioned yet, but those who were responsible over the last few decades for allowing Israelis, meaning Jews, because all the Israelis who live there are Jews, or at least the vast majority of them. Johannes, you're a very good exception. Um, Israelis living in these so-called occupied set, uh, territories are doing so as a result of an illegal policy of the state of Israel. Now, that means that they are being um, called war criminals. In the media, you see a statement like, the settlements are illegal. Not just Israeli government, but the settlements are illegal. And what is a settlement? Well, settlement is no more or less than a person. You, Johannes, are a settlement. You're a person. The, the, the word settlement has no—it has no legal description in international law. Uh, it's just a political term we use. Legally speaking, the the criminal act is allowing a person like yourself to live where you are living, or just to be there. That—that's—that—that—that's what—that's that, that, that's what, that's what uh, is 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 illegal. But. I just wanna just finish this to say that people say the settlements are illegal. And one of the reasons they say it is because of a judgment of the International Court of Justice 2004, which the court made this statement that the Israeli settlements are illegal. And this is picked up by the media, it's picked up by the political world to say the settlements themselves are illegal, which becomes a claim that the individuals are somehow war crimes, but they're not. It's it's the Israeli leaders who are uh, being charged potentially
1: with war crimes. Sorry if I'm interrupting you here. First of all, thank you very much for explaining this complicated way. And we are trying to understand what is going on here. And I try to kind of um, bring against your describing the European mindset i try to bring in israeli palestinian reality and i first of all would like to say that it's a it's a pain in the neck for israelis and palestinians that there is nothing like an israeli settlement policy now as a as a journalist and i would like to protect the media a little bit we have to report what we hear being said by Israelis, we don't have to bring in our own opinion and we report what you in Holland or Germany or wherever you sit, pay for. So that is is the tricky thing. Now here today, I'm in a little bit better position and I can ask you, Andrew, to understand better what is going on. And I want to, 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 in a way, uh, explode into your face my desperation, because there is no settlement policy, there is a settlement zigzag. There is, and it's, it's an amazing fact, if you go back, the person who gave the Palestinians the most territory is called Benjamin Netanyahu. It, just measure the square kilometers, go back in history. And ask which prime minister and which prime minister's rule the Palestinians were given the most territory. Forget all the legal background. And now go back again and say, when did the settlers and to which governments did the settlers flourish and build the most? And you will realize that the worst settlement leader was called Shimon Peres, the one who built the most settlements. And the only prime minister that ever made a settlement, uh, stopped building in the settlements officially, was Benjamin Netanyahu. The only prime minister ever coming up, and in a way admitting that it's wrong to build in settlements, but, but coming up and say, we stopped for eight months. That's what he did. Now look, that is one point. It simply doesn't fit reality. And the other thing is, I do not know a single Israeli that has been deported or transferred, using these words, deporting or transferred to where he lives today. Now, as a journalist, I have to admit, and this might mix you up, but I give you the word at once to explain this to me. I, I covered, for example, the uh, deportation of settlers from Amona, which the whole world applauded because it was an illegal settlement. Even according to Israeli law. And I remember settlers in front of cameras saying, I'm disappointed, I'm quoting now, I'm disappointed by the Israeli government because first they brought us here, uh uh-uh, uh, says the European, they deported us, and now they're taking us away. We are a, guy, a kind of game for them. Now I would like to stand up to every Israeli claiming stuff like that and saying to his face, you were not deported and i witnessed what was going on here for the past 30 years you were not deported you moved there by your own decision as a civilian sometimes even against the israeli government's policy there is a settler movement and because israel is a democracy the israeli government has to look for voters and i said Today, it's about 10% of the Israeli population that are settlers, according to European understanding. So I feel that you are, in describing this situation of European thinking, you are far away from the situation here. And let me make one thing very clear. I am like you, hopefully, like the European, hopefully, I'm very much European and I'm against acquiring law, uh, ground or territory by force like Hitler or Stalin did. I'm very much in line there with the basis of international law. And I agree with it. And secondly, I agree it is absolutely immoral and should be absolutely in line with international law that no government, has the right to deport civilian population in whatever direction. I'm fully agreeing with that. Whether these governments are called Hitler or Stalin or Benjamin Netanyahu, I don't care. Sorry for, to Benjamin Netanyahu for naming him in this context. No, dep- deportation should be illegal. Mm. But in the same straight, we have to say, the only way I saw people deported here in Israel was when when, the, when Gaza. Was uh, um, was sorry for the words "cleansed of Jews." We there was to... a deportation for political reasons, and mm-hmm. from my point of view, this should be illegal. But otherwise, I did not see a deportation of Israelis into occupied territories. Never saw...
0: so. Okay, but you say there was no settlement policy, but there was after the Six Day War. There were all there were all kinds of policy, um, policies developed about what to do with these territories. You had the Alon plan, for example. Um, and there was clearly a, a policy of some sort developed to allow Israelis to live in these territories. There has to be, otherwise it can't happen. So if you think of, uh, take Mala Adumim, for example, on the outskirts of Jerusalem is considered a settlement. Well, there, there is a positive Israeli plan, a policy, to build that community, build that city.
1: And let and me to explain to, to you or to our listeners that Ma'ale Adumim is that example that is very often taken, but it is a unique example. Because after 1973, after the Yom Kippur War, the Israeli government discovered that they are absolutely vulnerable towards the east. There's nothing preventing an army coming up from Jordan against Jerusalem. And therefore, yes, Maale was decided to be planted for strategic reasons. Yeah, But Maale was not the first settlement. It was, no. it was settlements like Hebron, which actually was a Jewish city for more than 3,000 years. And I can say today that Hebron in Hebron, always lived Jews uninterruptedly. And I know that with personal connections, there was one Jewish woman who was married to a Palestinian who lived even in Jordanian times all the time there and afterwards helped settlers to identify Jewish houses of before 1967. That means of uh, houses from before 1948, from before 1929, the massacre there. There was an Uninterrupted Jewish presence in Hebron, and yes, it was against Israeli policy that Rabbi Levinger went back and settled there, and did not leave again, as Israeli government wanted it. So we can choose our examples, and yes, Maladumim was a strate- strategic kind of decision. But therefore, I would ask, I mean, if we talk about law, we talk about something objective. We talk about something that is um, kind of above us, and we have to submit to it. And you feel that I'm getting a little bit emotional because I see people here on the ground. And also, as a theologian, if people only serve the law, I'm getting emotional because it will kill them, as the New Testament tells us. Okay, Johannes, let me... From my point me... of view, the law has to serve the people.
0: I, I agree, I agree. Uh, I think it, it might help us. There, there are two things that I think uh, happened after 1967. Actually, after the Yom Kippur War, I think the six, year, six years between the Six-Day War in 67 and the Yom Kippur War in 73, um, it was still very unclear to people how to, how to deal with all of this. And the Yom Kippur War, I think, forced a change. Now, one important thing happened was that there's a very, very strong line of opinion within Israeli legal circles that these are occupied territories and Israel has no business in the territories. And one of the reasons they take that view Um, and one of the lead uh, proponents of that view is Professor Yoram Dinstein at Tel Aviv University, who has written the international legal uh, most leading, probably one of the first, and still regarded as one of the leading authorities on the, the law of belligerent occupation. He took the view that these are occupied territories, they're not part of the state of Israel, and therefore, um, potentially, any settlement policies, what, the activities of um, not only enabling Jews and Israelis to live there, but to, to actually make it possible and to advance it is illegal. Now, one of the reasons he says that's the case is because, is to protect Zionism The view is, if Israel were to take sovereignty over these territories, it has to take sovereignty over the Palestinians. If you take sovereignty over the Palestinians, you lose your ethnic majority and Zionism is dead. Now, I've had this conversation with Dinstein and others uh, like him, and he gets as emotional as you do, if much more emotional, because he says, if to take the opposite view, you know, because you have, the, you have those who argue that Israel does have sovereignty. He says, well, that is the end of Zionism. And he, is, he would regard himself as being a, a staunch defender of the Zionist vision by creating this distinction between Israel and the occupied territories. Because in this way, we don't take responsibility for the Palestinians. There has to be some other solution, whether it's a two-state solution or something else. And you create this division. And this, I'm afraid to say, is a strong Israeli position. And it was the dominant Israeli position within international legal circles and also
1: outside Israel. Maybe just for the understanding of our listeners, I would like to re-emphasize that they understand, first of all, we are not talking here pro-Israeli, pro-Arab. We are trying to analyze the situation legally. And as you have heard now from Andrew, there is strong, to what I try to show, there is strong opposition within Israeli society against what I try to show in favor of the settler side. So that is is one point. I also want to admit that Dinstein is right But I come from a biblical point of view, not necessarily from a Zionist point of view. And I'm not saying that the Bible is against Zionism and the Bible is non-Zionist, but but we have to talk there a little bit more differentiated within. If Dünstein Dünstein understands Zionism as something like uh, Jewish, 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 then I have to emphasize the Bible always saw Jews and non-Jews together, also living together. And if I was for Bibi Netanyahu annexing the territories, which was um, a few months ago in discussion, and went off the table because of the peace treaty with the United Arab Emirates, I was for it because I wanted Israel to take responsibility for those who are up until now second class citizens. I'm talking about the Palestinians. And I think if there are human beings, we have to encounter each other on the same level and not being treated one preferred and the other and privileged and the other second class. And I can go on talking about the environment, call, talking about law, legal questions where settlements, indeed, are outside Israeli law. If Bibi would have annexed it, we would have had one law for everybody. We could environmentally not blame as Israelis, as the Palestinians, of spilling their wastewater into the territory and doing it ourselves and the Israelis and the Palestinians say, oh, it was the Israelis. This blame-blame situation would have been gone. We would know who is responsible. And this is, I'm I'm talking here on the ground. These are ones of the questions why I am asking these questions about international law and why international law is behaving here or European diplomats or, or legal experts are behaving here like they could, they could talk here into private lives as if they would be morally better. Okay, so well, that I'll... is something, and there's no discussion in Europe about all these things. I, 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 th- right. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, so all I'm trying to do is I think explain, I'm not defending uh, or I'm not, not, I'm not saying I'm for or against, I'm just trying to explain the thinking and how it developed. Because academics uh, are part of the system. They're more than part of the system. They are extremely influential in framing the legal thinking, which then determines how governments act. So they listen to the academics because academics help to develop international law. They're a recognized source of international law. So what they say matters, Um, but I think it's important to understand the the reasoning behind this very strong view uh, within Israel and within the Jewish world, generally. Uh, it's not just the Jewish world; uh, there are there are others who support it. But there is a strong movement within the Jewish world which is very pro separation and pro two state. Now, the second thing that happened, I think, is significant is what happened in Europe in the 1970s. And that is the, um, Europe was unifying and France was the leader of Europe at the time and pushing for European integration. The creation of a unified Europe was very anti-American and it was very pro-Arab. And essentially what you had was the development of a political partnership between uh, France and the political elite of Europe and the Arab world. It became known as the Euro-Arab dialogue. It developed after 1973. And part of that dialogue and part of the agreement really between Europe and the Medi- what was known as the Mediterranean world was the idea that the Palestinians rights had to become the center of attention. They weren't before that. As you rightly said, nobody talked of the Palestinians when Jordan occupied the territories. All of a sudden the Palestinians come into the picture and uh, Europe agrees to allow the Palestinians to achieve some kind of nationhood. Uh, it wasn't called statehood yet, but, um, and acknowledgement and acceptance that the Palestinian problem has to be solved. And I think that political choice that was made uh, explains why the Europeans are so strong about international law. Uh, and they're much stronger about the law of occupation when it comes to Israel and Palestine than they are in relation to any other conflict. They don't prosecute uh, Russian leaders for the war crime of settlements in Crimea or of Turkey for the war crime of settlements in northern Cyprus, that they are wanting to prosecute Israelis. And I think it's got to do with this mentality about um, having a solution to the problem, a political solution to the problem. And in my view, international law is a convenient language and tool to explain that political perspective, which leads us into the question of, you know, what is international law then? Uh, but law, international law is no more or no less really than a language, uh, a toolkit to express political positions. Uh, at the end of the day, law is about politics. Law is politics. Um, And it can be, you can explain it in one way or another, and you're both right in way. Um, It's very difficult, but but I I think that helps a little bit to understand the, the, the dynamic of this legal discussion
1: about occupation. Andrew, I'm, I think this is very interesting. And I have the feeling we have to do a third one because I did not get my questions down. And you brought f- up further questions from my point of view. You said right now that, and I don't want to go deeper in it, just to raise awareness also among our listeners, that you said international law is about a solution. Now, I know that Europeans, especially, always talk about the solution of the Middle East conflict. And if you talk about the Middle East conflict, you talk about the conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbors. You do not talk about the millions, and it's really millions of dead people during the past decades in inner Arab strife. I mean, just imagine that in Syria, in the last decade, per year, more people were killed than in the whole of the Middle East conflict on both sides. Per year, Syrian civil war, more people killed. The Iraqi-Irani war in the 1980s killed 10 times as many people as if you look today back on the Middle East conflict. So in a way, it's perverse. I'm sorry if I say that as somebody who who experienced war here, who lives in the middle of this whole situation. It's perverse to focus so much on one tiny luxury conflict in seeing what, what a bloodbath we're living in. But now you're coming and talk about the solution of the Middle East conflict. What solution do you have for Europe? Let's just take the borders. The borders of Europe all the time change. They changed a few months ago with the Brexit. Israel's borders that were never really clearly defined by international law, Israel's borders are much more stable than the borders of Europe. You are trying for the past 70 years, and don't come now and say in a more peaceful way, just look at the Balkans, or just look at the inner, inner strife like the, I don't want to mention the Baskins or the Catalonians. We have a lot of strife in Europe. We are trying, we are experimenting. I think we should continue this once more and ask also the questions, why is it that, that Europeans are not coming more in an understanding way? And say yes, we know that politics is about trying something, about understanding each other, about trying new ways. Look Be relaxed. We try in Europe for the past 70 years in a sometimes more peaceful, sometimes less peaceful way, to find a way to live together. And I have to say, as a German, I very much like that today I cannot take a car and go thousands of kilometers in any direction. I'm very grateful for that. I don't want to diminish that. And therefore, I'm also grateful for new peace agreements or normalization agreements between Israel and Arab states, for example. But I'm talking about now the attitude of Europeans. Why don't we come in a more relaxing way? Instead of talking about a solution, let's try to find a way to live together. And we can change it. We don't have to have a final solution or something like that. But we continue developing things. And we are not in 1945 anymore. And you can't come Pair the attitude of the Israelis with the attitude of Hitler and, and Stalin that formed the basis of international law. I'm sorry to say that, but there is a huge difference. And Andrew, I want to give you the final word for this, but and you also have the de- decision because you are the, uh, technically speaking the host as Christians for Israel International, um, but. But I think it's very interesting. And thank you very much for giving me this platform to get rid of some questions. And thank you for your patience. And as I said, I have more questions. And maybe this will never end. But maybe one more. I don't know. I don't want to bargain with you. Here in the Middle East, we always bargain. And we are emotional. I'm sorry for that. We are not as relaxed and as down to earth and as sober as you Europeans.
0: Good, Johannes. No, I think this is a really important uh, conversation. We're definitely not finished yet. So we'll continue it next, uh, next podcast. Um, and I'm very happy to do it. Um, because, I, as again, I, I think there's some very f- deep issues which, which this touches on. And I hope we can explore in a little more depth next time. So thank you uh, for this uh, episode. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you all for listening and watching. We'll see you next episode of Israel and Christians today. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. We'd like to connect with you online. Find us on Facebook, visit our YouTube page, and check out our website. For now, thank you for listening, and we'd like to see you next time. Bye-bye.